Welcome to Mentors on Fire podcast, episode number 15, where tonight we're going to be speaking to my good friend Paul Biersch from New Mexico. Joining us tonight also is Michael Benson. Rob couldn't make it tonight, but we do have Michael, who's going to join me in a conversation with Paul. But before we get down to our conversation, we do want to thank our sponsor, Command Consulting LLC, Solutions That Work. So if you are looking for solutions pertaining to <clears throat> electrification, including EVs and microgrids, all stuff that I certainly don't understand, but they do. If you have questions about things like that, charging infrastructure and the like, emergency services, including professional development programs and grant assistance for developing so solutions for shared services, reach out to either Michael or Robert at Command Consulting LLC to develop solutions for your organization. Solutions that work. Command Consulting, LLC. All right, let's jump right into it. Hello, Paul. Good to see you again, buddy. Same here. Um, it's been, it's been uh, a minute since uh, I think we've seen each other's face anyway. I mean, I think we've been keeping in touch on LinkedIn, but otherwise we haven't seen uh, seen each other for a number of years. I'm thinking last time we saw each other face-to-face -face was FRI. That could have been, and that was still many years ago. Yeah, that was still half a dozen years ago. I would bet. Yeah. So, and then we saw each other through uh, some of the grant-funded uh, work that you were doing with uh, West Coast of Florida. So interesting stuff. Um, we're looking forward to to hearing your story and uh, learning a little bit more about Paul Beers, who is now. Retired fire chief Paul Beers. How's that feel? Uh, amazing. Uh, I highly recommend <laughs> it to anybody who's not there yet. Um, and I'm sure we'll get to it uh, when we get into my story. But uh, I haven't been happier. Uh, I'm sleeping like incredibly, uh, which I can say in the last 25 years has not happened. And so uh, yeah. that's an amazing, that's an amazing accomplishment to have right now. You know, we were talking the other day, prepping uh, to get you scheduled, and we were talking about sleep. And for me, it was one of the things, one of the most important things that I prioritized in retirement was sleep. Because we just don't do it well. And it's literally the first thing to go that we concede to to the to the career if you will and uh we just kind of take it as well it's part of the, the cost of doing business but uh how's it feel to sleep how many hours you getting oh probably seven maybe six seven yeah but i i wake up you know i don't set an alarm i i just got uh back from a, a couple of training sessions that I've been doing. And, uh, of course I set my alarm to, uh, to get up. So, uh, so I wouldn't miss the class, but, uh, I always wake up before the alarm, um, <laughs> uh, because I I'm getting enough sleep. So it's a beautiful thing. Yeah, it is a beautiful thing. <laughs> what, uh, what would you say aside from sleep is the best thing about retirement right now for you? Present day. 
Well, and I think that this goes hand in hand with the sleep is is the lack of of stress. Um, you know, as a, a firefighter, captain, battalion chief, deputy chief, fire chief, uh, there was a lot of stress um, th throughout my tenure in the fire service, and uh, I was always thinking about the department, thinking about the safety of the personnel, thinking about, you know, budgets and, you know, dealing with uh, <laughs> politics and everything else. And, and that stress took its toll. Um, and I think it, it had an effect on my mental health and my physical health and my quality of life. And um, I would say, you know, like I said, it goes hand in hand with sleep, but I would say that the absence of stress is the biggest thing that I noticed. Same for me. What, what type of, uh, I start, started listening intentionally to podcasts when I retired, almost exclusively. I, I very, very seldom watch television. Uh, it, it's really, as I call it, intentional positivity. I'm, I'm able to control what goes in. Um, and a, a phrase that has I've heard a lot on a lot of different podcast platforms is uh, sleep hygiene. What type of uh, sleep hygiene do you practice? What essentially what that means is, uh, or do you have a a routine? Do you keep it a certain temperature? Are you keeping blocking out light? Are you stopping with devices at a certain time, or is it just you're just falling asleep? Are you deliberate about it? I'm I'm pretty deliberate. Um, you know, I have a, a routine. Uh, I I do watch the the local news. I, I I and you'll hear this when you hear about my story. But I'm a I'm a recovering journalist, and so uh, <laughs> I, I still have an interest in you know what's happening in in the world and in my community. And so, you know, after the local news, I. You know, I have a routine of getting ready for bed and, um, you know, I read for maybe about 30 minutes and uh, turn off the light and I'm out. So and like I said, that never that never happened when I was in the in the fire department. So uh, so I'm I'm enjoying that immensely. Agreed. I just literally two days ago, I just bought a, a lamp to put on my my uh, nightstand. And now I have the lamp, I have the book, I have the, the readers because I can't see anything. And uh, the same thing, I turn the lights down so that it's not so much the overhead light coming down. And I'll start reading and maybe, maybe get 20 minutes in and I'm done, yeah. done for. Yeah, I don't like it's, it uh, a long time. It's great. So recovering journalist, uh, in your bio, I read that and I mean, not totally unexpected, right? We all had to start somewhere. Sure. But uh, tell us a little bit about Paul. Where where did you grow up? Uh, what was your path to and through journalism? Give us a little uh, little insight into into who you are and and where you came from. Uh, so, born in California, I was actually born in Napa. Um, so interesting that that's, and I'm glad uh, you're drinking wine, uh, Michael, that's, uh, <laughs> that, those, that's, sorry, it's cool. from Sonoma and, uh, 
and I was with Russian River Valley and I think Anderson Valley. Yeah, so it's on the Sonoma that, that side. Area. Sorry. So, yeah, that's my people. So. <laughs> uh, born in California um, and uh, in and out of California most of my childhood. Uh, I spent a little bit of time in upstate New York in my uh, when my when my stepdad was in the Navy and he was stationed in Boston and a little bit of time in Florida uh, after he got out of the military and then uh, back to California, ended up in Salt Lake city, Utah. My dad was a radio guy in the military and uh, transitioned to uh, computer. And that was back in the day when, you know, what I'm watching this podcast on or listening to this podcast on, uh, took up a whole room. Uh, that's when my dad yeah, no was kidding. involved in that. So, so uh, <clears throat> did high school and college in um, in Utah, uh, Salt Lake City. Um, I was not LDS, and so I was a little bit of an outlier, but uh, 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 but still enjoyed uh, you know uh, living there. I, I loved the the mountains. I loved the outdoors, and. Uh, when I was in high school, uh, I worked for the, uh, the school newspaper and the yearbook, and I just kind of fell in love with photography and uh, went to college and uh, got a degree in journalism and because uh, that was the path that I was going to go down. And uh, so got out of college uh, with a degree in radio, TV, and film. And uh, this was back in the day when we still used film. Uh, you remember that, right? <laughs> <laughs> a little bit I, actual I, I, film I, I have some of that laying around somewhere yeah yeah <laughs> I, I still have i actually have some in my freezer which is <laughs> which is kind of odd thing to have in your freezer but uh that's where we used to keep film to keep it fresh uh but obviously it's it's way outdated by now but uh so out of college uh got my first uh newspaper gig uh in a small town in oklahoma um, just kind of ended up there because that was where the job was. And, uh, I worked at, you've been all over Paul, huh? I have, I have. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm mostly a Western boy. Um, kind of stand, uh, stand West of the Mississippi, but, uh, uh, I, I, you know, I've, I've seen a, a lot of the country and, and, uh, we've got a lot to offer and I, and I, I, I've loved, I, I don't think I would trade any of my past. Uh, for for something different because because I had a, a, a you know a pretty uh, broad range of experiences uh, growing up uh, with with my family moving around. Uh, but I worked. What in- was it about? What was it about journalism that that interested you specifically, if you recall? Uh, telling stories. Um, you know, everybody, and, and you know, I, I, this came true. Uh, in the fire department too, right? When, when we would respond to somebody's house, uh, for a, a medical or for, you know, a fire or whatever, um, everybody's got a story to tell. And I just found it interesting, uh, to kind of dig deep into their, into their lives and, and tell that story. Um, one in particular, uh, that just, uh, it always, and I've got photos, obviously, uh, you know, all over my house and, and in my, in my files, uh, from my, my time, I I worked about 16 years, uh, in journalism and, uh, 
you know, I, I, I came across this, it, it was in Oklahoma. I came across this old guy that uh, had a um, blacksmith shop and it was in this tiny little town in Southwest Oklahoma. And uh, he was just, you know, the picture perfect uh, blacksmith that, you know, that you can imagine uh, uh, working in a, in a, a shed uh, that was just made of weathered wood. And uh, I remember, uh, you know, and it gets cold uh, in Southwest Oklahoma with the winds and, and what have you. And I remember the boards on this on this shed, you know, had spaces in it that, you know, was, was this wide, you know, it wasn't it wasn't, you know, it, like a you know modern shop. And, uh, you know, he had his forge and, and you know, he's wearing overalls and and, uh, you know, a wet, very weathered face and and uh, the stereotypical blacksmith. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, and I said, you know, looking at his his walls and I said, so. So what do you do in the winter <laughs> with these walls? And he goes, he looks at me like I'm stupid. And he goes, well, I get, I get cold. <laughs> so, you know, that's Put on a sweater. Yeah, exactly. And that's the kind of stuff that uh, I really, uh, I embraced because, uh, you know, it's so, it's, it's so truthful. Right. And, um, and it's just, you know, it's a character. It's a caricature uh, of somebody, uh, but it's, you know, it's, it's somebody that's in your community and, and every, every community has that. And so I, I enjoyed doing that. And I, and I particularly enjoyed doing it with, with pictures. Um, you know, I felt that I had a, a good eye for that and, uh, and enjoyed doing that. And so, uh, so I did it in Oklahoma for, uh, like six years and, uh, my wife, uh, we met in high school, actually in Utah, uh, but she was originally from uh, from uh, Albuquerque uh, area, mm. and she'd always wanted to come back here. And so uh, she got a job, and then I got a job at the at the newspaper in uh, the Albuquerque, uh, uh, well, it was the Albuquerque Journal. It was a statewide newspaper here, and I worked there for thirteen years. So when you were working in Oklahoma, you were freelance or were you working for some money? Or no, I worked, what was I that? worked for a newspaper. Um, uh, it was a, in a, a small town in southwest Oklahoma. Uh, if, if anybody uh, listening uh, was in the Army, they probably knew it well. It was a lot in Oklahoma. Uh, there was a, a, an Army base there, Fort Sill, uh, an artillery base. Um, so it was a military town. Uh, but it had a, you know, it had a daily newspaper and, and, uh, I worked for that paper, uh, like I said, for about six years. So how does a degree, and this is just part of my ignorance, but it's part of the, the interesting part about learning from people. How does a degree in journalism prepare you to be a journalist? Like what, what do you learn in a degree in journalism? How to write? Is it photojournalism? Is it all of it? Yeah, it's all of it. Um, you know, writing, um, the style, um, you know, they, they, they call it the inverted pyramid, right? They, you know, it's not right like writing, uh, fiction or, or, uh, you know, uh, a letter you in a, in journalism, you put the most important stuff at, you know, at the top 
and and then the least important stuff at the bottom because if it gets cut for space then you don't lose the important stuff so it's it's structuring you know it's structuring that um uh you know that block of of text uh, so it it's readable um but it's also um you know the visual aspect of of telling a story um and uh you know they 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 deal a lot with ethics and there's you know there's legal issues in in journalism you know and you learn obviously about the first amendment and and what have you so uh so a lot of that is um you know kind of throughout that that educational experience. Now, were you, were you doing both the writing and photo, or I, I was primarily a photojournalist, but I did I did writing as well. Which which parts did you like better, the photo stuff? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. It, uh, I I just felt that uh, I could be a lot more creative. Um, and I, and to be honest with you, I wasn't a, a <laughs> you're going to enjoy this. I, I wasn't a great, a great writer until, uh, I think the EFO program and my master's degree, I, I think I became a much better writer after that than I was, I think, as a journalistic writer. Listen, I think we all went through that, that same, uh, experience. You know, some, some of us may have been better than others <laughs> before we got there, but we all were better after absolutely uh so you 16 years of journalism you're in albuquerque you are married now i'm presuming yeah kids have two boys um obviously adults now i've got four grandkids now uh, so yeah congratulations was, yeah thank you um uh, somebody once uh gave me a a uh, greeting card that uh, had a saying on it that said uh, grandkids fill a void in your heart that you never knew existed and uh, <laughs> that's and, a good one yeah it's uh, it's very true grand my grandkids are are very very special a, a friend of mine he's a funny guy he said i wish i could figure out a way to have grandkids without having kids yeah. <laughs> <laughs> a little difficult. Yeah, i can see that yeah so you're in Albuquerque, and tell what are you doing? You're you're working every day. Your wife's working. What, what's going on now at this point in your life? So uh, at the Albuquerque Journal, I kind of worked my way through. Started out as a freelance uh, photographer, and then uh, staff photographer, and eventually uh, became the photo editor. So I was in charge of the photo department. I had thirteen staff members. Um, you know, and we covered, we covered a, a lot of news. Um, the, you know, this was, this was the heyday, I think of journalism that you don't see anymore, uh, especially from local, uh, newspapers. Um, we were very aggressive. Um, we traveled all over the country. Um, you know, we would follow our, our sports teams, um, you know, the, the, uh, the University of New Mexico uh, Lobos had a had a really good basketball team back in in those days, uh, a mediocre football team. But we would still follow them. Uh, the Unsers were were still big in the racing circuit, and we would follow them because uh, they're from Albuquerque. Um, and uh, we was. Fun, fun fact. I'm sorry. 
Is it a, there's a fun fact. Yeah. Didn't yeah, necessarily. Yeah. yeah. Answer senior and junior, right? Bobby as well. Um, oh yeah, brother. Yeah, brother. So, uh, and we would uh, we would go. the The publisher of the newspaper uh, was a pilot and had his own jet, and he would uh, mm-hmm. he'd fly us around. Um, he would uh, take us uh, to uh, big news events, and we would uh, hit the ground running and cover uh, big news. In fact, uh, one of the first ones that I ever went on uh, was uh, where you're living now. Uh, Michael is uh, in Florida. I, I covered uh, Hurricane Andrew. Ninety-two. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, and uh, so we flew out there. Um, we always tried to find a local, you know, a local twist to the story. And uh, New Mexico had a big uh, disaster medical assistance team, a DMAT team, that they sent mm-hmm. out uh, uh, at Andrew. And so we we followed them and uh, went out with with the team. Um, we went to, um, Oklahoma city, uh, after the Murrah bombing and I was, uh, five days on the ground there and, uh, uh, kind of interesting, uh, side note about that is I think it was, uh, it was witnessing the destruction of, of the Murrah federal, federal building that, um, really imprinted on me, uh, on how how exposure uh, to uh, a disaster like that can really imprint on on your uh, heart and uh, in your mind, um, and um, you know it, I think it it speaks to uh, the bigger picture of you know our you know as firefighters our exposure to trauma and. Um, you know, uh, I, I still remember everything about that, uh, you know, covering that story uh, in Oklahoma City and uh, and how it affected me. Let me ask you a question, because I'm 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 interested in something that you just said. Did you find that being a journalist in a disaster t- situation, whether it be Andrew or uh, Oklahoma City? that that helped you to detach or made you more uh, attached to it? What was it like from behind the lens of a camera? So are, are you asking if it, if the, if it piqued my interest in wanting to become a, a first responder, is that kind of where you're going with this or? No, 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 no. Like literally as a journalism, as a journalism, as a journalist, you're, you're there from the journalistic perspective, are you able to look through the lens and kind of detach yourself from the reality of the situation? Or does it draw you more in because you're so focused on on paying attention to what you're seeing? So I, I will tell you what I discovered, um, and this was later in life. Um, I didn't realize it uh, at the time, uh, but I felt that looking through uh, that disaster uh, through the lens of a camera, shielded me. At least I thought. Yeah. It, I thought it did. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah. That it was like, and I know this sounds trite and and a little bit silly, but it it sounded it, it to me 
was like watching TV, right? You're watching a, a disaster mm-hmm. movie. And I think it, I think I felt like I was detached because I had that barrier, right? I had that screen in front of me. Um, but the reality is, um, I don't think I was. I think it, it, it just is exactly the latter of what you said was it, it drew me in closer. And, uh, and I believe that um, it put a spark inside of me to want to be on the other side to, uh, to help. And uh, the one doing something instead of recording people doing something. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. I I tell this story to people. It's, it's a little, um, it's a little, uh, I mean, it's not hard for me to tell the story, but, um, but it goes to that question that you just asked. Um, When I came back, so realized that when I was in Oklahoma city, I didn't see any dead kids. Um, I didn't see any bodies. Um, I saw a massive amount of dis- destruction. And and I remember thinking to myself, uh, in fact, uh, I, I wrote a letter to my mother uh, while I was there, um, which she saved uh, for a number of years. And, uh, and she uh, recently uh, gave it back to me. But I remember thinking to myself, this is the worst thing that's ever going to happen to our country. <laughs> and, you know, yeah, yeah I mean, exactly. Yeah. I mean, and, and it, at the time it, it was, but I came home after five days and my youngest son, I want to say was seven at the time, might've been six. And, uh, you know, I was having some downtime at the house and uh, him and I were sitting on the couch and we were watching TV and, you know, it was a, a news program. I don't remember which one, but it was one of those news programs where they kind of, you know, rehashed the the news of the week. And of course, you know, the Oklahoma City bombing was, um, was uh, you know, on the top of, of that news. And I'm watching it and... Uh, and and my son has a, an amazing ability to kind of see inside people's souls and uh you know here's this here's this little kid sitting next to me on the, on the sofa and he he looks to me and he goes he goes daddy it's okay to cry and i'm wow. going to tell you um that was one of the most powerful um moments in my life i you know the floodgates opened and i i started bawling um Mm -hmm. and so you know so that that is kind of answers your question michael's when i think uh when i thought that i was shielding myself i was truly being um being dragged into the situation because it affected me deeply right i mean i'm looking at it and i'm thinking to myself if you're looking at a situation Without a camera, you have the ability to look away, if that makes sense. Yeah. But if you have a camera, you almost feel like you have a res- responsibility to find things to look at, the next most sensational thing to look at. Um, so I, I would think that that would almost cause you to see more. That's the way I'm processing it anyway. 
Yeah. Plus, yeah. if you were physically there, you're going to get the sounds and the smells and the feelings and everything else that, that goes with it. Because I watched it on TV like everybody else. And the, the crazy thing was the lesson I took from it was what an excellent PIO that assistant chief was. So when I became a chief and had to be on TV, I would always wear my turnout coat and my helmet because that's what people think when they think firefighter, fire chief, they, they'd see that vision. And I remember that vividly, but you know, it's kind of weird because everybody remembers things weird ways, but in that particular lesson learned, the PIO lesson learned was important to me. And it's just kind of weird that you are a journalist recording it. Mm -hmm. uh, when I was learning how to be a good PIO by watching somebody else do a good job at it. And then you're, you're not in your head saying, yeah, he did. He did a good job yeah. as a PIO for a, an incredibly crazy incident. Yeah. yeah. And, I, and I, I will say this about um, Oklahoma city, um, which uh, I've held uh, ever since I, I was there is uh, they had a lot of grace um, and uh, they welcomed, you know, I, Usually, you know, and, and this was before there was really a, a sentiment, you know, an anti-journalist sentiment uh, that I think that we have prevalent today. Uh, but, man, they welcomed us. Um, in fact, my kids uh, reminded me the other day that, uh, uh, you know, they they were giving out cookies, you know, to journalists. And uh, <laughs> and I, I, I brought the, you know, and I, I remember getting some cookies in a, in a Power Rangers, uh, uh, you know, snack pack or something like that. And it was just, you know, it was just, it, it, in, you know, it, it made an impression on me on, on how graceful and how accommodating and how hos hospitable they were. And, uh, and, uh, it, you know, I, 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 I was, uh, proud to have lived in Oklahoma at that, at that point because of, of how they, how they, uh, embrace the situation, you know, as horrible as it was. Yeah, I didn't put that together. So you were in Oklahoma, living in Oklahoma when that happened? No. Or you were in Albuquerque? No, I, had, I had worked in Oklahoma prior to that. Um, but right. I, I was working for the Albuquerque paper and they, they, Got uh, it. they sent us back. So sorry about that. No, that's fine. So is, is this the event or is this the, the, the period of time where you started thinking about emergency service i think it culminated uh at at that point um but uh you know i i think it was uh i think it was just the years of doing it and then um i ended up with an opportunity to uh join a uh, a volunteer uh fire company and uh and that that I think was my introduction um, to being a first responder. Uh, I you know I hadn't intended um, uh, to change careers, uh, but I was just uh, I was doing that to you know to help my community because I lived in a in a small community outside of of the Albuquerque area and in uh, in uh, the mountains outside of uh, the the valley and. Um, uh, I just felt like, you know, may, perhaps I could use this as an opportunity to give back uh, uh, to live in this community and, and fill a need, um, not with no intention of, of changing careers. 
Uh, right. But uh, journalism, <clears throat> uh, at that time, journalism was kind of uh, changing. And, uh, you know, I was kind of an old dog and in, uh, in a... <laughs> in a situation that uh they were trying to teach me new tricks and uh and uh, and I wasn't going gracefully so um <laughs> so you're saying you don't want to tweet and insta and you know, all that, that kind of stuff cuz part of it yeah and, um so you know I I I was in journalism until 2001 um I don't think social mm. media was even around it that wasn't quite there yet yeah Yeah, almost uh, cell phones uh i remember i i I had one of the first cell phones uh in the newsroom and man i thought that was the coolest thing in there it was like like, (laughs) was it in a bag it was in a bag you had to plug it into the cigarette lighter come on paul what were they asking you to get rid of your rotary phone what what were they asking They want you to use a computer instead of a typewriter. What were they asking? Well, to be honest with you, it, it it was the beginning of the kind of the digital age, and uh, I was a I was a purist uh, when it came to journalism, and uh, especially um, uh, uh, images uh, that were they had to be um, they had to be accurate and they had to be um, truthful, right? Uh, we were entering a time uh, in the late 90s and uh, at the turn uh, Y2K where we were starting to manipulate photos. Um, gotcha. And, right. um, you know, I, I had mentioned that, uh, you know, when uh, when I got my bachelor's in journalism, uh you know, ethics were uh, a huge part of that education process. And I felt that it was, uh, it was violating those ethics to change an image to meet somebody's expectation. Um, and, you know, they, they, they were able to sleep at night by saying, well, we'll call it an illustration rather than a photo. And I was like, well, that's, that's, not, wow. how, that's not how people see it. And so I, I just, I felt like um, uh, I wasn't going to be happy doing that. And I, and I felt like um, I was going to uh, violate my own personal principles. And so, you know, having that um, exposure uh, to being a firefighter uh, in the volunteer ranks, I was like, I was, understand that I, I was... Uh, 42 years old uh, when I made the switch. Um, Is that right, Paul? I was, yep. And, uh, you know, that was, I was taking a huge leap of faith, right? I mean, I think I... No kidding. I I think I was a young 42, but, uh, you know, (laughs) that's in my own, you know, my own mind's eye. Uh, I I don't know. um, You know, I I think I, I was lucky uh, uh, to find a department that, uh, was willing to give me a chance. And, uh, you know, I, I made that, I made that switch. I took a, uh, my wife still talks about this. My, my kids were just getting to the point where they were getting out of high school. Uh, and we were talking before the, the podcast that, um, uh, my son, uh, got an appointment to the Naval Academy. So I, I wasn't gonna have to worry about 
paying for his tuition. Um, but I, I, I took a huge. No, you left, you stuck me with that tab. Thanks a lot. <laughs> <laughs> um, I took a, a huge cut in pay. Uh, I, and, uh, oh, yeah. I went to work, uh, at, a at a fire department, uh, actually it wasn't even a fire department, to be honest with you. It was a, a department of public safety. Uh, we, we did fire, but, um, uh, you know, it was under, under the, uh, direction of a, of a police chief. And, um, but you know, my, my first, uh, my first paying gig in the fire service was, uh, was $9 an hour to, you know, be a fire. That's awesome. too, so. so- this is fascinating to me, truly fascinating. The, the, virtually every person that I talk to that comes into the fire service is, is affected in some way by someone who's already doing it. At 42 years old, was there a mentor? Was there somebody that you were speaking to, making the right decision? Or were you making this just leap? A little bit of both. Uh, so, uh, I don't come from a fire family, uh, but my, uh, my older brother, uh, was a volunteer firefighter at the time, uh, in uh, a suburb of Fort Worth. And, uh, and he actually served, uh, for a little over 20 years as a volunteer, uh, in, uh, in Fort, in the suburb of Fort Worth. And so, uh, when you talk about mentoring, you know, I, I certainly, uh, reached out to him and, and, you know, said, Hey, brother, <laughs> what do you think about this? You know, what do you think about an old guy? You know, and he's, he's, uh, uh, three years older than me. And, uh, mm. and so, you know, he was doing it at that age. Um, and, uh, he, he's like, yeah, I think you should do it. Um, and, uh, and so I, you know, like I said, I, I certainly didn't make that decision uh, alone. Um, you know, we made it as a family. I, like I, I mentioned, uh, our boys were, you know, getting to the point where they were going to be out of the house. But, um, but you know, it was going to affect. It was going to affect our family. You know, financially. Um, you know, doing shift work uh, versus um, you know being home on weekends and and being home for holidays and all that stuff. So. Uh, so it was going to be a big, a big shift in uh, how the family was going to look at it as well. <laughs> Excuse me. So let's talk real quickly about New Mexico. I had heard a statistic, and it could be completely inaccurate, but the population of the entire state of New, of New Mexico is like less than 2 million people. Is that accurate? That's accurate. Yeah, it's a very... Wow. It's a very um, sparsely populated state. Um, the The city uh, that I worked um, for 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 twenty years, um, the city of Rio Rancho, is a suburb of Albuquerque. So the the main uh, population centers in New Mexico are the uh, north central New Mexico, which is where Albuquerque is. And there's several communities that line up with Albuquerque. It's along the Rio Grande, and and um, uh, so it's it's bordered by the Rio Grande on one side, and and uh, the uh, tail, the southern tail of Rocky Mountains on the on the other. 
Uh, so it's high desert. Uh, we're at about 5,000 feet elevation. And uh, the main population center is, is Albuquerque and then Santa Fe, which is, is about 40 miles away. And then Las Cruces, which is on the, on the Mexican border, on the southern border. Um, so uh, Rio Rancho uh, is a suburb of Albuquerque. And uh, due to our size, we are actually the third most populous city in the state. Wow. Uh, I mean, the reason why I'm asking it is I would imagine that there, there's probably not a whole lot of, I'm guessing, a whole lot of career fire department opportunities in the state. Um, the, the majority of the state is, is covered by uh, small volunteer departments. Um, right. There, there are a number of paid, but they're nothing like, um, like what you would see back east or in a in a more urban setting um you know albuquerque santa fe uh las cruces like i said those are the kind of the three big ones but you know most towns that have you know 10 to forty thousand people will likely have either a paid or a combination department um smaller communities obviously are going to be uh, you know smaller volunteer um, there's a lot of uh, combination uh, county departments in the state. Um, one that borders our our city uh, is a is a combination department that serves the entire county. But realize gotcha. that you know the land mass is is another thing. I I, I think the the uh, and I'm trying to remember the the gentleman's name that was on last week uh, or the last your last podcast, but he was talking about his his jurisdiction being. I think it was oh John Hayek. Yeah, it, it was like three point four <laughs> square miles or something like that. Yeah, hundred times that size. <laughs> yeah, we're you know my my uh, uh, my jurisdiction for uh, for the department that I worked was one hundred three square miles. Yeah, uh, with a population of one hundred ten thousand people. So you know it wasn't it wasn't small, but you know we were we're spread out. There's a lot of space here, and that and that's how probably most of the state is. You know it's you know you get neighborhoods in in Albuquerque and you get neighborhoods in in our jurisdiction as well, but um, but the neighborhoods are they're not contiguous. You know they're they're spread out. It's much much different than Arizona to to think that they're sort of close together, but. It is very different that way, I would imagine, in population. Yeah. Interesting. So you start with as a volunteer, and then you get your first paid job with a different department? Yes. Yeah. Not Rio Rancho? No, Rio Rancho was the paid department. The, oh, it was? The okay. volunteer department was the county department, which has now transitioned to a combination department. Gotcha. But it was all volunteer okay. back uh, when I was there. So I was there five years before... Uh, before I became a paid. Okay, so I'm dying to know. What what's forty two years old, which is not old, and I say that as a fifty two year old. Um, you walk through the door, you're hired with a with a group of people and they're all 
young as your kid. Yeah. What is, They're all what is reversed. The, They're 24, not 42. Right. right. Yeah. <laughs> what, is, what does day one look like? Whether you're going to a fire academy, talk, talk me through what does this look like? Paint the picture. <laughs> um, so, you know, I, I, I knew that I was going to have to prove myself, uh, you know, being along, uh, you know, and we, we had, it was, a, it was a small, you know, I, I think we had, five people that, that got hired, uh, with my group, you know, and realized that when I got hired, our entire department was 30, 35 firefighters. Um, so, right. you know, it was a small department, um, because we were, again, we were a DPS department of public safety. Um, so, uh, and, and the, the, I'm fast forwarding a little bit, but, you know, after, after my training and, and, uh, uh, you know, my FTO period, uh, probationary period, you know, you could be at a station by yourself and, uh, you have, and, and we're, you know, we, we were back then and we still are a single tiered, uh, uh, department. So, so we did EMS and we transport. So in the Bay, you know, you have a fire engine and you have a, a tender, and you have a, a ladder truck, but it's a it's a quint, it's a it's a stick. Um, and then you have uh, a rescue or an ambulance, and your bunker gear sits in the middle of the floor. And depending on the call, <laughs> this is a true story. Depending on the on the nature of the call, you grab you grab your gear and uh, you throw it on whatever apparatus you're going to drive. And then you, this is before Google Maps, you take out. Uh, chamber of commerce map and you figure out where the hell you're going and uh you love it you get yourself there uh and uh start setting up and and cross-trained police officers meet you and they either have medical gear in their trunk or they have bunker gear in their trunk (laughs) and uh and you work you work the the incident alongside them and this this was for so i was um, so this was for five years. We did that. Uh, the first five years of my career. Um, you might be listen, Clifton, yeah, Clifton, New Jersey was a public safety department. Oh, was it? Okay. Until the eighties. Yeah. Yeah. So we, we actually were until 2005, uh, where we did a split and uh, an administrative split, but we were still under the, under the direction of the police chief, uh, which did you. Did you have to go to the police academy? No, no. Uh, we were we were hired specifically to man the stations, uh, so Got we it. didn't have to be cross trained. Um, they they called us driver operators. We would just get to, <laughs> bring the truck. Called, yeah, we weren't even called firefighters. <laughs> you know, I mean they 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 you know our job was just to get the get the the apparatus there and and. Uh, the cops hated it. They hated it. They didn't want to. Of course they did. I always joke. <laughs> You're saying the police officers didn't want to do the firefighter jobs. The firefighters like, we don't want to be cops. No, no, no. Let's face it. They didn't want to do both jobs. They wanted to do the firefighting. <laughs> well, oh, hey, that's right. That's right. We're supposed to pretend that they, yeah, they took the wrong test. Right. right. Yeah. They, the commonality <laughs> between uh, police officers and firefighters is they all want to be firefighters. So, no kidding. Uh, that's so, funny. Yeah. But eventually we, we ended up splitting and uh, we became, uh, you know, we, we kind of have a, a, a traditional um, 
as as traditional as as uh, I think we have an east or um, I'm sorry a west coast mentality uh, in uh, in New Mexico. Um, you know, when I first joined, we we used the you know the Phoenix helmets uh, that were you know that are still very mm. popular in California. We had a heavy California influence in in our department, and so that's kind of how we we built. Uh, but then we got an East Coast chief uh, who came in and pointed at our helmets and was like, "Yeah, those are gone. Mm. Those those will be gone tomorrow." <laughs> uh, so no more have, motorcycle we, helmets. Yeah. Do you know how much better the fire goes out when you wear uh, the Metro Ten Ten or whatever the heck they are? Yeah. Whatever. Oh, we had the leather ones. It was ridiculous how heavy those oh, were. Yeah. 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 So you enjoyed it going in. You enjoyed it I, from day I did. one. You know, uh, I enjoyed uh, the challenge, right, uh, of being next to, like you said, you know, somebody that was twenty-four, uh, because I, I, I could show that I could do it, you know, and, um, you know, I, I kind of went in uh, with the mentality that. I wasn't going to be the guy that was going to, um, you know, I'm not a, I'm not a big guy. And, uh, and, you know, put on top of that, that, uh, that I'm 42 years old, uh, you know, I'm not going to be the one that's going to, you know, be, be doing the forcible entry, um, you know, cause then it was just brute force. We didn't have techniques back then, uh, that we do now, right? <laughs> technique. Uh, yeah. We had no technique. Um, but I, I will say this: uh, they they took advantage of my size uh, at times, and I, I would get sent through doggy doors and and what have you when we had medical alarms that we couldn't get in the house. Uh, Whatever so, works. Yeah, and they're done that. So yeah, I I, yeah, I enjoyed the the ride. It, it uh, like I said, I I I've never looked back and and regretted uh, making that decision. So. Just I'm trying to understand. I learned so much about the way different fire departments are com uh, comprised or composed or built or whatever the right way of saying that is. You go to work every day into a firehouse by yourself or just sometimes you're by yourself? Sometimes. Really depends. When you're not by yourself. It's usually with one other person. But there's no officer? No, not back then. We had uh, – so – uh, when I first got hired, we had, uh, four stations and, uh, at one of the stations was a battalion chief and at the other station, I'm sorry. At, so one station was a battalion chief at another station was a captain and the battalion chief kind of was the South district command. And then, uh, at the other station, the captain was the North District Command. So we had two officers on a on a shift. Um, but like I said, that you know, we we've grown since then. But uh, but that's how it was when I when I first started. And this is two thousand what one two thousand one two thousand one. So you started your career career before nine eleven. Yes. Uh, right, I mean, like right before. So I was hired uh, July of 2000, uh, 2001. And what was that event like to be in New Mexico? 
so I had gotten off shift. Uh, we were on 2448s back then. And I had gotten off shift uh, the night before or the, the morning before. Uh, so I didn't, I got off on the 10th. So I had the 11th off and I was going to go back to work on the 12th. Um, I was sleeping um, when, when it went down. Uh, my wife uh, worked in the medical field uh, for mo most of her career. And, um, and uh, she called me from work. And she goes, are you up? And I said, well, I am now. And she said, you need to turn on the TV. And, uh, and I turned on the TV just as uh, the second plane was, was uh, flying into the towers. And the thing that uh, struck me the most, because I'm, I'm, I mean, I'm, I'm not a new firefighter. I'm new in the sense of you know, several months on the job as a, as a career firefighter, but I, you know, I, I, I'd been with a volunteer, uh, outfit for, for five years before that. So the thing that struck me was hearing, uh, the pass alarms go off and, yeah. and I'm just, you know, I'm my, my soul is just like sinking and I'm talking to my wife and I, and I said, you know, when, when the, uh, when the first tower collapsed, I said, oh my God, uh, a lot of firefighters just died. And that was, that was, I mean, it was just my, uh, my heart broke at that, at that moment. And, um, you know, everything that, you know, I had felt before of, you know, being in, in Oklahoma city and seeing the devastation there was just personified, even though, I was seeing it on a TV screen. I was like, Oh my God, this, you know, this is happening. And what it was like, I think for our department here, I mean, we're pretty, you know, I mean, we're, we have a lot of space between us and the East coast. And, um, I think we experienced what every fire department across the country experienced was, a surge of uh, acknowledging our existence and acknowledging our um, uh, value uh, to the community. You know, yeah. we we got <clears throat> you know, and I almost felt guilty at times uh, when when people would you know they would bring us cakes and cookies and, you know, and hanging banners, you know, at our station, you know, thanking us for our service. And I'm thinking, that's not, that's not me, right? I, w I wasn't there and I wasn't doing that. But, you know, I think we were on those coattails of, of what happened. And uh, people realized uh, that, you know, we were there and and maybe had been invisible before and so you know i i think we embraced it uh as, as uh, the american fire service um but i you know i feel like it it sucks that it had to happen like that in order in order to become visible to the american public 
I couldn't agree sense. with you more. Yeah. Something I'm thinking about, Paul, um, <clears throat> was it, it doesn't sound like it was, but was it, or maybe you don't know because you don't have anything to compare it to. I got hired at 25 years old. Was it harder for you or did it take longer for you or whatever the right way of saying that is for you to either develop the identity or embrace the identity as a, a, a firefighter? Than some of the the younger people that you got hired with because you had had such um, so much life experience before outside of the fire service, or did that not have an impact at all? I, um, you know, it, it's it's actually interesting. Uh, I, we were not talking about that, but we were talking about a similar subject. Um, I said I was I was just at a, a I was at a smaller uh, rural fire department doing some training, uh, and, you know, seeing, uh, these young kids, uh, in, uh, in these departments who had just been hired, you know, who were fresh faced and new. And, you know, I think, um, having life experience is a benefit, uh, to allow you, uh, I think, an easier transition into that to that lifestyle. I think if you only know the fire service, uh, it limits your view. Right? You 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 see the world this way instead of, of this way, and um, so I think it helped me uh, to have that life experience. Not only uh, a different career, but to have lived, you know. Uh, through through my family you know and it, you know maybe it was easier uh uh dealing with you know the the missed holidays and the missed birthdays and, and such you know my boys were starting to move out of the house you know they weren't little kids i didn't have to worry about you know missing their first steps or or you know missing the school play um because they were already starting to be independent so i i think it was almost easier for me to transition uh, into the fire service. Um, I think the identity just comes, um, you know, and, and I'm, I'm not saying that as, as an expert, I'm just saying that as somebody who lived it, I think that the identity, uh, just comes over time. Um, uh, you know, you, 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 uh, you take advantage of, of those, uh, you know, the, the Maltese cross on your t-shirt and, the hats and, you know, I'm wearing one that was given to me uh, yesterday, um, you know, having the right sunglasses and the cool factor and, you know, all of that stuff. <laughs> I mean, that, you know, all of that just, just falls into place because it has to, right. You, you feel like you, uh, you have to fit into that mold, but I think the identity just comes with time. Um, and I think, I think the experiences that you, that you endure uh, through the fire service builds builds your identity over time, um, and and you just you just become that. Yeah, I I hadn't really given thought to the fact that you had grown kids. Not every firefighter comes in with young kids or without kids, but the vast majority of people that I'm familiar with come in young, and they raise their family up to the fire service. So it's always, uh, it seems to be more 
prevalent there. I mean, I work at a fire academy now, and I'll tell you what, we, we joke, we say, the, the students don't get older, but we do, because they continue to come in at that same age. And it's so interesting to see a room full of 18, 19, 20-year-old people when you're 52 and you're like, oh, my goodness. <laughs> you know, it's it's just it's just different, you know? Yeah. Uh, and there's a, there's a big difference between 20 and 30. Absolutely. In a recruit. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and this is my my personal bias. Uh, I, I'm not sure that an 18 year old is is ready to see that. No, neither are we. <laughs> um, you know, I and uh, they changed the the hiring agent in my department after I left uh, because I, I was I was an advocate for for keeping it at 21. And you know, not that 21 is is old, but I think at least you have some life experience and uh, you know 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 how to wash clothes and know how to cook at least hopefully. Um, uh, but I think kids are coming into the departments now. And I'm making this as a general statement. Obviously, there's some great kids, and and you know, I'm, all of them are great because they're they're stepping up. But some of them are coming in with you know just very very little experience in doing uh, those things because you know they've had it done for them in their in their homes. Uh, but you know that that's a personal personal bias on my part. So what did they change it back to? Eighteen. They changed it back to eighteen. Yeah. 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 The state of Florida is is eighteen. So. Um, I don't know if it would be better. It's very anecdotal at best to be to be able to say that something would be better or not to raise it or lower it. But um, there's definitely a maturity factor between at that. Those three years are probably much more critical than the difference between, say, 32 and 35. Yeah. The difference yeah. between 18 and 21. Yeah, I agree. Um, so you're in there. You got the cool guy sunglasses on, and now you start to dive into all things fire rescue. Where, where do you go from here? Paramedic school, rescue school. I was reading your bio. You yeah. definitely did a lot of the things. At what point did you start to to go down the, the rabbit hole? I think paramedic school was, uh, <laughs> was the thing that really kind of cemented my future. Uh, so... And I was only in a year uh, in the paid department when they said, hey, we're going to send uh, somebody to paramedic school. You want to go? <laughs> and it's like. Oh, it wasn't that a requirement at that time? It wasn't. No, uh, we had uh, we are uh, we are still an ALS service, but not everybody is a paramedic. Uh, so we have EMT basics and advanced EMTs. Uh, I was already in advance well, the, at the at the time they called them intermediate so I could start IVs um, that I had gotten that in the volunteer department. Um, and let me let me back up just just a second, uh, because uh, there was there was something that happened in my life uh, before I became a, a paid firefighter that uh, that kind of changed my life as well. Um, while I was still working as a journalist, uh, as I mentioned, I had become uh, I had gone to class because the 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 county had offered this uh, advanced EMT class or EMT intermediate back then. 
And I took it because uh, I was enjoying the medical part of it. And uh, there was a classmate of mine who worked for one of the Native American Pueblos, uh, so the Indian reservations out here. And she worked for an ambulance service. And she's like, hey, why don't you come work work for us? And I was like, I, I already have a job. And she goes, well, you can work part time. And so I decided to do that um, to just get some get some experience. And uh, I, I will tell you, it was it was an eye-opening experience uh, in two ways. Uh, it opened my uh, my life to learn uh, the true meaning of uh, of you know pre-hospital uh, medical care um, because it was an hour away from the nearest hospital. And so when I had a patient, you know, I had him for quite a while and really got to see if the interventions that I was doing uh, was making a difference. Uh, but it also showed me a side of uh, New Mexico, a very rural New Mexico uh, that I hadn't uh, even known existed. Um, you know, some of these uh, reservations, you know, dirt floors, uh, wood heat, uh, a lot of medical issues, and uh, and so we were a value, uh, a valued um, asset to their community to have uh, an ambulance service. And th there was a, a moment in time when I I transported uh, an elderly uh, Native American woman who didn't speak English, and so we were, you know, we were having a, a communications gap. And, you know, I, I don't remember every detail about the call, but one thing that I remember is when I dropped her off at the hospital, um, you know, I, I checked her into the ER and went back to check on her and, and tell her goodbye. And like I said, we, you know, we had, we had communicated the best way we could. And, uh, and she, she took my hand in hers and she, she smiled at me and nodded her head and I was like, oh shit, I'm hooked. Um, that was that was a pivotal moment in my decision to uh, to do this full time. And so, you know, the the fire part of it, like like you just said, the cool sunglasses and the, you know, having the Maltese cross and and uh, you know uh, having that firefighter swagger, you know that that was part of it. But to be honest with you, where my heart was was in medical. Um, uh, you know, 80% of our, of our calls, well, 70, it was like 78% uh, of our calls uh, throughout my career are, are medical. And uh, so I, I took that advantage to go to paramedic school uh, because I knew that that was going to be uh, my future, um, you know, a, as a guy of, of 42 um, you know, I, I, I wasn't going to be relevant, uh, you know, to be in, uh, the old guy, um, you know, up on a roof or, 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 you know, like I said, doing forcible entry or, or whatever. Um, you know, I, I knew that my, uh, my time on the nozzle was, was going to be limited, um, because of, of my age. Um, and so I, I, I wanted to give myself options. And so um, I, I felt that paramedic school was really going to give me that, that door um, 
to uh, a lot of different options uh, in the future. And uh, it was it was a great decision. Um, I went through uh, Albuquerque Fire, uh, uh, their uh, paramedic training academy is 11 months long. And so uh, here's this new guy, uh, barely uh, off probation. And they're like, see ya. You're you're going away uh, to to paramedic school. Um, I had to work one twenty four hour shift uh, a week, uh, but other than that, I was in I was in school. So I I, I kept you know I kept uh, my uh, my uh, connection with the department uh, on that one twenty four hour shift, uh, but um, but it was a great experience. Um, you know I. I I uh, I really embraced it, and it did open a lot of doors uh, in in my future. What were some of the doors that it opened for you? Uh, teaching uh, that was my first uh, kind of real uh, you know uh, experience in in teaching. Uh, I had the opportunity uh, to teach for uh, a local community college. Uh, to teach uh, EMT classes. And uh, the funny thing about that, I did that for about six or eight years, I think. Uh, I still run into students that I taught. Uh, we hired uh, a bunch of the students that I taught, and so they're they're actually still on the department. Um, and so to me, uh, it was kind of a legacy um, to uh to have that ability to uh, to teach, and then it opened up, you know, teaching EMS, and opened up doors to you know teaching other things too. So uh, so I felt like that that was a, a good door to open. And then um, I think the other big door uh, that it opened was uh, that really uh, was my uh, I think my opening into getting. Uh, into uh, the command staff um, because uh, my first uh, uh, promotion after I promoted to captain, uh, my I was able to promote to battalion chief of uh, uh, emergency medical services. So, uh, right. just uh, <clears throat> to, uh, get into that role uh, really uh, meant that I could uh, influence our. Um, uh, our program development, uh, we did a lot of things in, in our department that we were kind of the first in the state to do. And uh, I was pretty proud uh, of that. We were we were on the cutting edge and, and they, they still are. They, they do a lot of things in in uh, their uh, in our department that uh, uh, really, uh, you know, are uh, cutting edge and uh, using, you know, medical science, they, uh, they're doing things that uh, other other EMS agencies aren't doing. And, and that, that, that was exciting to me. Well, give us an example of something that was cutting edge when you were uh, so, involved. Uh, and it's, it's, it's used so uh, frequently now, but we were the first ones in the state to use CPAP uh, for respiratory distress. Uh, and, we actually, I even had a medical director reach out to me and said, you're going to kill people using CPAP. Um, and that was something that, uh, you know, was... We send people home on CPAP. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. 
Um, but it wow. was, it was super cutting edge at, at, at the time. Um, and, uh, and it, uh, you know, it kept us from, from intubating a, a, a lot of folks. Um, you know, the, uh, not, uh, providing oxygen, uh, or not providing, uh, ventilation for, uh, early cardiac arrest. That was another thing that we, we started to, to do before. A lot of folks did uh, getting rid of backboards or, you know, reducing our use of backboards. I mean, those are some of just a, a few of the examples that we did uh, during my tenure. Uh, but, uh, yeah, it was uh, it was cool to to be able to, um, you know, we were small enough and nimble enough that we could uh, we could make those those big changes um, without a lot of effort. That's awesome. You know, you, you talk about teaching. I th- my opinion on that is that it's it's probably next to impossible to be in any type of a mentorship role if you're not willing to to teach and most people that teach start out of a love of learning which is what causes them to want to teach other people yeah. and not everybody's good at it that's yeah. not the point but the point is the motivation to to teach people. I, rem- I still remember, I'm almost embarrassed to say it. Um, my partner in the ambulance had a huge influence on my career. He was 10 years older than me, about 10 years old, older. And um, he had asked me if I wanted to become an instructor. I'm like, heck with that. And uh, I had no interest. You know, he was a super young guy, just not interested at all. And becoming a, an instructor and getting involved in teaching other people because you have to you have to be able to explain something to someone else uh, really made all the difference for me well and you know when when you really look at it the instructors uh have an automatic legacy right i mean i i mentioned you know the the people i run into uh, who i taught their emt class and the ones that are still in the department and and some of those guys uh, and gals that I taught, you know, have progressed in their careers now and are you know becoming company officers. They're becoming uh, uh, you know uh, executive officers, and that's exciting to see. You know that that sure. you had something to do with the early part of their career that sparked something in them that is now. Uh, you know, progressing and, uh, and hopefully they're, you know, they're passing that along, uh, to someone else that's going to take that role, uh, down the road. Um, so it's, it's a term legacy that, um, that instructors don't realize that they have, or maybe they do. Yeah. There's a, uh, a friend of mine that I met when I got down here, he's, uh, been around 20 plus years and and it seems like he's trained everybody like everybody you know he's like you were my instructor and and uh it, it really is a nice legacy it really is yeah it's a good way of putting it yeah my kids to this so said, you know everybody dad and it's like, well, <laughs> you have you, you, you bump into you, a lot of people you, you do bump into a lot of people so so at what point do you decide you're going to make the jump into uh the leadership role. Well, I like I said, I, I think it was when I had the opportunity to move into uh, the battalion chief of EMS, 
And, uh, you know, as a a paramedic on the ambulance, uh, you know, like, like anybody new into a position, right. You, 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 you look at it and you say, I think I could do it better. Right. Sure. I think that if we had, uh, this piece of equipment or if we had this, uh, medical protocol, or if we got rid of, of this medication, it would be better. And so when I had that opportunity, um, to move into that position, you know, I, I was like, well, here's, here's my, here's my chance to, uh, you know, to steer the boat, so to speak and, um, to make things happen. And so, uh, you know, I started on, on that journey and, and I was, you know, I I was probably floundering just like anybody else, you know, we didn't have, uh, an officer development program back then, you know, we were still young. Um, we were, you know, we were growing, um, you know, our, our department, our community, uh, you know, our call volume, all of that stuff was, was growing. And, um, uh, we didn't have time to, to, to get officers ready. So, you know, we tested and whoever passed the test, you know, you got put on the list, you know, we didn't do, you know, I mean, we, we had a, a, a training chief, uh, in my latter years that, developed a, a great, um, you know, officer development program and it's continuing to this day. And, you know, we are better preparing officers to, to take that role. Um, but back then, you know, you just took a test and, and here, here's some bugles, uh, have at it. And so, so uh, go ahead. No, I was going to say, um, you had been promoted once or twice before lieutenant captain or just no, we did we didn't, uh we didn't have lieutenants back then uh we had captains and then battalion uh so got it so it was it was two promotions um so uh because of the you know i mean i, I had the life experience right and i'd had some management experience in the newspaper business uh i was like oh i i've got to i've got to figure this out and so um, to be honest, what, what I started to do was, uh, I started to go to the national fire Academy. Uh, and this is before EFO days. Um, I started looking at their offerings. I mean, it, it, I, and I tell anytime I go to a, a firehouse and, and I'm teaching a class, I, it's like, how many have been to the national fire Academy? And sometimes you'll see one or two hands. So it's like, good for you. The rest of you need to go. Um, it's such a great experience, but they, you know, I started taking their, their EMS, um, classes, you know, the, uh, the, um, uh, you know, they, they have a, a, a track of, of EMS classes. Right. Um, and so I started taking those and I really feel like that was, uh, you know, that was my officer development, right. Uh, which. Uh, I hadn't gotten before. Um, I, I feel like I, I got it through uh, the NFA. And uh, how did you find out about the NFA? Uh, like I said, at the, at the time we had a chief from the East Coast. He was from Massachusetts, and 
and he, uh, you know, he was a firefighter's firefighter and, and he had, he had gone, uh, several times. And, and so when, when, uh, he promoted me into that battalion chief position, he's like, you got to check this out. It's, it's a good place. And so I started looking at it and I was like, hell, it's free. And it's a, you know, it's a good, good trip, um, away from, uh, you know, away from work and, you know, nice little uh, area to go to and visit. And, uh, so I went once and I was hooked. Um, and, uh, I went every year. Um, you know, I, I did, uh, I think I did three years in a row before, uh, I was accepted into the EFO program. And so, um, so I figured that that was, you know, that was, a a, a good way to, uh, help me, uh, kind of learn the ins and outs of, of leadership in a, in a fire in a fire department. Cause like I said, we didn't have anything formal. Uh, you know, I had, I had officers to, you know, look up to, uh, but they were as young, young, uh, they, they were as young in the department as I was. And so we were all in the same boat, you know, except for this right. chief that was coming out of Massachusetts. Um, you know, we didn't have anybody to look to. We were all in the same boat. We'd all been hired around the same time. And, uh, we had all had the same training. And so, uh, so it was, it opened a door, uh, for me that, um, I could, I could peer, you know, behind the curtain and look and see what other departments were doing. And that was, um, that was eye opening. Um, and it was, it was, I think, beneficial to my career as well. Now, the officer development program that you mentioned a couple of times, <clears throat> what, what was it that this program did? How did it develop officers? What 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 did it do well? What did what do you think it did well? Uh, the one that that got developed after I became an officer is that the one you're talking about? Yes. Yeah. So it uh, it start giving them the the tools uh, on managing and leading. Uh, so what it, what it, you know, it did is it, you know, it taught them about, um, discipline, you know, how, how do you run a firehouse? Um, you know, I mean, it, the, the, a lot of the nuts and bolts stuff too, right. Uh, the Enfers reports and, um, you know, how, how to, uh, negotiate through all the electronic stuff that, you know, that we have now, um, uh, you know, going through, uh, more of, uh, you know, uh, command and control on, on a fire ground, uh, you know, learning, um, you know, how, how to, uh, run a, you know, because we're, we're small, uh, like I, I had mentioned before, you know, I mean, we're, we're still, uh, uh, running, uh, two and three man engines. Uh, we run them with a, a rescue. So it, uh, so it creates a, you know, a four or five man team, but how do you, uh, you know, uh, tactically, uh, attack a fire when you have four or five guys, uh, sure. until the, the next unit arrives, which, as I mentioned, our neighborhoods were all spread out, spread out. So, uh, you know, a lot of command and control, um, you know, like I said, uh, firehouse, um, management, um, you know, it, it just, it gave them the tools, uh, to, uh, to hit the ground running. Um, you know, you can't teach, um, 
you can't teach some of those finer leadership skills that are going to develop over time, but you can give them a running start. Now, did you do this as a cohort? Was this, what was the, the delivery method? How, how did you get them the information? Did they sit together as a group? They sat together or... as a group. It was a week-long class um, and uh, brought in instructors from various uh, aspects of the department, you know, people who are subject matter experts. And, uh, you know, and it's, and it's morphed over the years, um, and uh, they've, they've changed the curriculum up, uh, but it's still, I think, a very effective model. You know, we we never we never had an officer development program, at least that I remember. I'm getting old. Uh, we focused on the new people coming in. Um, my mentor was preceded me <clears throat> as the training officer, so I took over for him. And we were both in the military together. He was. The, essentially the, the reason why I joined the military at 27. Um, and it was the PQS book, which was, this is what you need to know to do this job. And as a 27-year-old person coming into naval social warfare, it was like a uh, steep learning curve, super steep. Uh, but th there's a book, and this is what you need to know. Um, so we kind of modeled that, but we started, we, we found it to be, uh, easier is not the right word, but less, less resistance to start by training the new, new generation than training the old generation. And it wasn't without its problems. Um, but that started in 2007. So we're going into a 16th year and to the best of my knowledge, it's still done to it. You know, it expanded over time. But there are people now in leadership positions that came up with that formal process of this is what you need to know. So when you talk about a leadership program, an officer development program that includes report writing, well, it should um, because that's what an officer needs to know. And the part of where I believe organizations fall down is they don't define expectations there's just well they should know because they're an officer and um people people want to do a good job people don't come to work and say i'm going to do a terrible job today um so if you if you tell them what to expect people will rise and fall to your level of, of expectation um defining that and, and like you said before giving them the tools sets them up for success sets you up for success Sets the organization up for success, um, varying levels of success, but success nonetheless. I I couldn't agree with you more. Um, you know, like I like I said, you you really can't teach leadership, but you can give them uh, the, the tools uh, and the expectations. And you know, sometimes it it may sound <clears throat> like you're just giving them the nuts and the bolts. But if they don't have those nuts and bolts to begin with, you know, they're, they're not going to be able to put together the, the, the machine, <laughs> right? Uh, and, you know, something is... Right. And, the, and there's... Sorry. Uh, I was going to say something as simple as... You know, no, go ahead. How, how to do discipline. Um, you know, they, they may have been the recipient of discipline, uh, right or wrong, 
um, or, uh, you know, mentoring and teaching, you know, they, they may have been the recipient of that right or wrong, but giving them tools on how to do it correctly, uh, like you said, sets them up for success. And not everybody is going to be successful, right? We, we had some officers that, that just weren't cut out to be officers, um, but that's okay. You know, not everybody is cut out to do that. I didn't see in my organization, again, don't quote me, it gets a little fuzzy. I did not see the form that we used for discipline until I had been on the fire department for 15 years. Wow. That's a good thing, Michael. You weren't supposed to see that form. <laughs> well, you're supposed to know about the form. Yeah. You know what I mean? So my, my thought is not that I didn't, uh, that I wanted to see it. It's just that people will, will, people don't want to look stupid, right? They don't want to mm -hmm. say, I don't know. They don't want to ask. Mm -hmm. Um, so it, it's about what, what is your system for doing X, whatever that may be. And discipline is a part of it. It, it just, the reality is, it is that it is. Um, I, I just interesting thought of, stuff. Thought of uh, another. So you become the the chief. Uh, hang on, sorry, sorry. I just thought of another component of the, the officer development class that uh, that maybe other programs don't don't uh, include, but we found it to be very helpful is teaching them about budgeting, uh, about how the fire department budget works, um, because what we found was. <laughs> Oh, well, our truck is broken. You can just buy us a new truck. Um, and they don't know the ins and outs of, of how, how that happens and how much money it takes and, you know, how you have to plan for that, uh, you know, as a capital improvement, uh, uh, project. And so, uh, budgeting was, is, is a component of it that I think opens people's eyes to something that, you know, again, it's peeked behind the curtain. Yeah, I, I learned a lot about um, budgeting as the training officer because I, I was responsible for equipment. So when you're on the line, you, hey, we broke a flashlight and the next shift to come back and a flashlight appears or if it's not, it's like, why is there not a flashlight here? And then when you're the person who needs to order it and requisitions and purchase orders and vendors and approvals and, you know, all different kinds of stuff. Yeah. Yeah, the whole thing. Exactly. Uh, so I was going to say before, you, you, you become the, the, the battalion chief of VMS. This is a staff position? Yes. Yes. So five days a week? Five days a week, uh, eight hours a day. Um, so I, I get out of shift work. Uh, but... Um, because I'm a, a battalion, uh, I, I do fill in uh, for the shift battalions. Uh, so I, I, I occasionally go back to shift and, uh, we'll do operations, uh, just as a, as a fill in. Right. But your primary uh, duty is days. Yeah. Yeah. And that's usually where the shift happens. At least in my experience, you, you see, you see a side of the fire department, uh, that most people don't see either because they choose not to or whatever it may be, but you really do start to see how things work. What, what would you say 
was your greatest lesson learned working in a staff role? Greatest lesson. Um, I would say that you truly know where the decisions are made. Um, and, and what I mean by that is that, you know, operationally, um, you know, on a fire ground, uh, the decisions are coming, you know, like that because they have to, right? Uh, when you're uh, either a company officer or uh, a battalion working an incident, whether it's a, you know, a crash on the, on the highway or a, a house fire, you have to take in a lot of information very quickly and you have, you have no time to analyze it. And you are making decisions that uh, could eventually, uh, you know, bring a situation uh, uh, to its conclusion or create a mess. And so those decisions are ultimately, you know, very important and learning how to make those decisions in a, in a, in a uh, you know, in a moment's notice, uh, I think just comes with experience. What I think I realized in the staff position is all of those, all of the elements that happen uh, to support the the department in its uh, everyday operations, right? And when I, when I mentioned the budgeting, you know, you, you really don't know how or when that flashlight showed up that that had gone missing, uh, how that got there. Um, you really didn't know how. Uh, when an SOG was updated, how that came about and was distributed, it just became, it just came, came to you, right? You didn't know how those decisions were made to bring CPAP uh, in, into the emergency medical services. Um, a lot of, uh, a lot of components and a lot of gears that work together to create uh, that whole network of, of decisions that happen. Um, and probably the most surprising thing to me that I didn't realize was happening was the kind of the political connectedness that the fire department had with, uh, the elected officials in, in the, the city. Um, and I think that probably opened my eyes more than anything is that, oh shit, you know, we're, we're getting looked at. Um, you know, our budget's getting scrutinized, um, and it's, it's these people, uh, that are elected are, are the ones that are, that are looking at it. And so we need to keep in contact with them and we need to keep them informed. Uh, and I don't think that that's something that, that, uh, folks who are on shift realize that, that in fact, I don't think they even could identify. I mean, I, I think that there are some, but I bet that if you put up a bunch of pictures on a screen, I I would bet that more than half of the department can't identify your city councilors, which could be a problem, right? And it certainly <laughs> could be if there's a person that you're providing your services to that particular okay. day. I agree. Right. You know, you you brought up some <clears throat> some really interesting points that made me recollect back to to my time in a staff position. Very, very similar to what you said. My my biggest lesson learned that I recall now sitting here hearing you was 
the difference between the mindset of a shift worker and the mindset of a staff worker. I mean, just opposite ends of the spectrum. And you would you would see having worked shift work that how much you're able to just put blinders on. Well, we got busy that day. You know, we had whatever whatever X number of calls is that goes from uh, makes it a busy day, which is why the training didn't get done, the report didn't get done, the the whatever needed you needed them to get done didn't get done, and then you would have to sit there because we were one in three, so we were a four platoon system. So you'd have to wait four days for that person to come back. Then somebody's on vacation or it's a Saturday. And the next thing you know, you haven't gotten what you wanted to get or needed to get for two weeks. And it's like, oh, what's the big deal? And, you know, the that was the biggest difference was had I not had the perspective of working in staff, I would never know that the perspective existed because it was just, how would you know? Right. So I did it once as the training officer, as a captain, and then got promoted to deputy and did it again and, and really used that experience, and, and along with some other things, used that experience as an opportunity to say my role now as an executive officer <clears throat> in my department is to give people the perspective that I know that they don't have. That's my role is to make them see what I know that they can't see. Yeah. Uh, and a, a good friend of mine, I used, I used to say to him, your perspective is that under the kitchen table looking that way <laughs> in this firehouse one day out of four. You don't see what happens in the other fire stations and you don't see what happens in this one on days that you're not here. And uh, so I, I know that, or at least assume that by by putting yourself in a staff role that you start to see certain things that, that you never really would have seen before. And for some people, it's like, I don't ever want to see again. Maybe you could walk us through how you decided to, to continue to move in that direction. Well, it, it, a couple of things came to mind when you, when you were talking, you know, it, it we had uh, light duty positions, you know, for, uh, you know, it may have been a female that, uh, was pregnant or or somebody that twisted their knee or or whatever and so we would we would put them in a in a staff position you know to do whatever training or or logistics or or whatever and it was really interesting uh everyone that we had in there like we, <laughs> we never knew you know i'm gonna go tell everybody of course they never did right because nobody else and then the next person come in we never knew and so it was always a big surprise like you said it it opened up uh, their eyes. Um, and the other thing that came to mind and, and, uh, think back to your first year, uh, in EFO, the book that we had to read, uh, leadership on the line and the point that they made about getting on the balcony, right. And, and seeing, love that book. Yeah. And seeing, uh, you know, the whole dance floor, right. Uh, you know, it's a dated analogy, but it, it works. Um, and, and I, I use that, uh, uh, as, as a talking point is that, you know, in operations, you know, you're focused on fixing, you know, fixing the problem, whatever that problem is. Uh, and uh, you don't see what's going on over here to, you know, that that is affecting 
your ability to fix that problem. And uh, being in that staff position is is definitely uh, something that gives you that opportunity to to see that. So you can shape the organization or you can shape people or both. And for me, I because as you were talking, I, I had that thought. Um, I started out with the organization. I was trying to shape the organization. It took me a while to come around to the people side of the business. I wasn't always the person I am today. Um, what, what type of things did you do to shape the people of your organization? Cause I know you did just knowing the person that you are. Uh, you talked a lot about changing the organization itself, the policies, procedures, processes. What about the people side? How um, I've always looked at my career in the fire service. Um, you know, I, I I mentioned you know all those stories uh, about how I got started and and you know those moments that you know changed my my life. It was always about taking care of people. I I thoroughly, and again, it sounds trite, right? Uh, you know, it's it's the it's the the firefighter interview, you know, why do you want to be a firefighter? Well, I just want to help people, you know? Uh, I truly did. I got, I got a, an incredible boost in my soul. It fed my soul to make people's lives better, whether that was a patient or, you know, a victim of a traffic crash or, you know, a victim of a house fire or a flood or, or whatever. Uh, I, I got a kick out of, out of making it better and, you know, bringing some calm to their chaos. Well, when I became, uh, a chief officer, uh, I lost that ability, right? I, I'm, I'm not running calls anymore. I mean, yeah, I had lights and sirens on my, on my vehicle and I had a jump bag in my, in my car. You know, I, I always tell people I, I'd run code three to end up directing traffic, um, in the latter years. Uh, you know, I, I, I wasn't taking care of patients anymore. And so I think how I influenced people was, uh, I cared, uh, I cared about the men and women who were in my department and I want, you know, I wanted nothing more them than to be successful, uh, to promote if they wish to, to have the tools uh, necessary to do the job well, and to be happy and healthy. Um, so I worked very hard on developing uh, programs that not only uh, help them maintain their, their physical and medical uh, health, but also their mental health. And um, that to me, uh, I think, has, uh, I think, influenced uh, people into leadership roles that shows that if you care for your people, they will follow, uh, they will follow you uh, without question. And, uh, that to me uh, was the 
I think it was the the thing that I saw uh, was the most influential uh, for my my leadership role was to to make sure that I took care of them. If that makes sense. No, it does a hundred percent. And I know that we're going to get into it. Your work with uh, firefighter behavioral health or mental health, whichever way you're most comfortable expressing that. Um, what what was it for you that caused you to get involved or get interested in that as a topic? And I asked that question simply because, again, I look back. Part of the reason that I do this podcast is because people may look at me, you know, I walk down the hallway in the, in the fire academy, oh, chief, chief, chief. Wasn't always chief. Um, you know, I started exactly where you started. And um, sometimes I, I look back almost embarrassingly uh, at the way that I was then, but you got to give yourself grace and the opportunity to grow. Um, when I got involved with mental health first aid, um, it was after the EFO program, and I had this much interest in firefighter behavioral health, zero. I got involved in that because it helped me to do my job better out in the street. It was all about doing the job better. And I, I still remember the day, I could tell you where I was standing, when I, we were delivering mental health first aid to the people on my shift. And I remember the guy, I'm not going to say his name, but I remember the guy, and he started talking to somebody else about experiences that he had had. He was a uh, veteran. And I said, wow, this is really an opportunity for them to open up. And it was it was from that where it started to change for me. Not that I didn't care about people, but my, my focus was on making them better firefighters, not necessarily making them better people. And I think that that made all the difference for me. What was it for you that caused you to to go down that uh, path of firefighter mental health or behavioral health? So um, I'll get to that in just a second. I want to make a, a quick point. When you, when you talk about, yeah. you know, making them better firefighters, we do that really well, right? We train. We train, I mean, ISO requires us, right, to have, what is it, 16 hours per person per month uh, of fire training. So we train them to, to be good firefighters, but, and we train them how to survive a, a fire, but we don't <clears throat> teach them how to survive their career uh, with their heart and their soul intact. So, uh, and I, I tell this story, uh, in, in almost every class that, that I teach. Um, and the young man that I'm talking about uh, is still with the department and he, uh, he's he been very open about this and knows that I tell the story. I, I don't identify him just because it, it doesn't add anything to the story. But young firefighter, um, I was a battalion. No, I, I think I was the deputy chief at the time. So I was in the EFO program. Uh, I, I hadn't, uh, gotten to my fourth year yet. And, uh, he came to me and he, he said, uh, chief, he goes, we had a really shitty call and I don't know what to do with it. It, you know, it ended up being a pediatric call. Um, and it was a, it was a, a code 
and um, and the the child didn't survive. And uh, I was like, well, you know, I've got these cards that the you know human resources department gave me for our employee assistance program. And I said, this is, you know, here, here, take this card and call them and make an appointment and they, they will help you. Uh, and that's what I had. That's, that's the tools in the toolbox. Right. And, um, uh, he came back a couple of weeks later and he, he said, chief, can I talk to you? And I said, yeah, sure. And he goes, um, that card you gave me, he goes, that wasn't very helpful. And I was like, what do you mean? He goes, <laughs> I, he goes, I, I went there and I told them this story and they said, I thought firefighters were supposed to be tougher than that. Oh boy. And I was just, I mean, it, it pushed me back in my chair and I was just like, are you serious? And he goes, yeah, I'm, I'm absolutely serious. And so, you know, in the EFO program, they say, you know, uh, figure out a problem that you're having in your department and then, and then solve it with research. Right. And, and so I said, well, that's going to be my, my next uh, applied research project. I'm going to find out what, what other departments are doing. And um, I started looking into firefighter mental health uh, issues and the, the ways to solve it. And, uh, and that just really started to spark my interest and I started to, you know, look at it as, you know, leadership on the line, right? Getting up on the balcony and looking at it as a, as a global issue. Uh, and then started to look inwardly and, uh, thinking about, you know, all of the calls that I had been on and, uh, you know, all those images that were, were still, haunting me and I thought well shit if it's a problem for this kid and it's a problem for me it's got to be a problem for a lot of people and um you know started looking into you know the the data that's uh surrounding uh firefighter suicides and uh you know I talked to to Jeff Dill from you know the Firefighter Behavioral Health Alliance. He was one, kind of one of the first guys I I, I reached out to. Um, he was just getting started back then, and I don't know if you know much about him, but he's a uh, you know trained counselor now, but uh, retired from the fire service from the Chicago yeah. uh, suburbs. Great guy, um, and uh, and so I started to 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 you know, problem solve and figure out ways to, you know, adaptively address this problem that we're having in the, in the fire service, you know, and it wasn't, it wasn't just me looking into this, right. I mean, other, other departments have, and, and we've, you know, so that was, gosh, what we're, we're out a little over a decade ago. Uh, so, you know, we've made a lot of progress, um, you know, we, we started a, a peer support team in our department and, uh, you know, we got the jeers and we got the, the side eye and we got the, the nicknames of the hug club and the, the care bears and, but we endured it. And, uh, <laughs> I like that. You know, Those are yeah, funny. And, yeah. And, uh, 
you know, I, I actually told this story yesterday when I was teaching this class. I, I had a, uh, and he's still there. He's he's uh, a longtime member of the department. Uh, you know, he's firefighter's firefighter. He's he's an officer now, but you know, he was the one that came up with Care Bears and and uh, you know, really you know, discounted, I mean, not in a mean way, but says, oh, we don't need that. You know, we, we take care of our own. We, we handle ourselves and we, we can, we can handle this. And, uh, I knew that I had made a difference when, uh, he called me one day and he says, Hey chief, uh, I don't know if you heard, but station two had a really shitty call. And he goes, you might want to send one of your team over to, to check on them. And I was like, I've made a difference. This guy uh, is, yeah, you know, he's he's come over to my side, and uh, and so we're making a lot of progress. Uh, you know that, and I think the fire service is recognizing that. You know, there's a lot of initiatives out there. Uh, there's a lot of resources that are, uh, you know, but we're we're not there yet, right? We're, um, uh, the you know the hardest part about about the development of our program is that I lost a member of our department to suicide. Um, and this was when I was, uh, the chief and, uh, and it was, um, it was the worst day of my career. Um, and I'll never forget that. And despite, uh, despite the efforts, despite the, the resources, despite the, um, you know, the, uh, programs and policies and everything else that we had in between, we lost him. And, uh, uh, he slipped through the cracks. And so, you know, it, it, it kind of relit a, a fire that may, you know, may have uh, started to dwindle a little bit. And I said, you know, I, I don't want another chief to have to go through this. And I've talked to plenty of chiefs uh, out there who have lost members to suicide and, they all have the same story. You know, we didn't know. And, uh, and so, um, so, you know, I, I, it's my passion. Uh, and, uh, after I retired, I said, you know, I'm going to, I'm going to stay involved. And so, uh, so I am, um, I'm trying to, you know, are we going to prevent every suicide? Well, I, I don't think it's, you know, it's, it's a realistic, uh, goal to say that you're going to uh stop all suicides from happening but if you can save one um it's worth it it's worth the effort i never lost anybody that i knew to suicide uh far on the fire department but looking back we had lost retired people but never considered it an issue because they were retired and i count i think three two two that i two that were before any anything about behavioral or whatever but uh, my story is more based of, around the fact that we, we almost lost somebody, my firefighter that was involved with an issue that that I had where 
Um, he told me years later, a couple years later, that he put his son down in front of a Happy Meal and was going to walk in front of a bus. And the only thing that stopped him was because of his kid. And I felt so guilty and tremendously powerless uh, and was grateful that he, he decided not to do that, clearly. But it was it was from experiences like that that changed, you know, essentially everything. Um, and really, uh, yeah, well, it, it, again, it's all part of giving yourself grace because you're growing uh, as a person and, you know, life is a way of doing that to you and for you. Again, which is why the value of doing what we're doing here is because I want those stories to come forward to the, to, to the forefront, which is um, you have to live life. Right? Life is a, is a series of experiences and, and lessons learned. That's what life essentially is. <clears throat> and if you knew everything at the beginning, well, what fun would life be? Um, and sometimes there easy lessons to learn. Sometimes they're really, really hard ones. And I, I'm, I'm sorry that you went through that, but <clears throat> I would imagine that that experience is as traumatic and, and uh, painful as it was changed you for the better. And, and in a way that you would not have been able to, to become who you are without having had that experience. Not that you would wish for it to happen again, but I, the, those, those type of experiences, not firefighter suicide, but those type of experiences that change you happen a lot. And, and being able to be there either for someone else or have someone be able to be there for you, because depending on what side of the relationship you're on, um, that again, it's all a part of what mentorship is. It fall, falls in, into that, which is being able to take care of other people. Um, I don't know what your thoughts are on that. I'm going to stop talking. So the the fix, um, and, and you're right, it did change my life. Um, and it, it, it gave me a new sense of, of purpose and, uh, and passion uh, for this. Uh, you know, I'm in touch uh, with. Uh, uh, I mean, his name is is uh, is okay to even talk about because uh, you know I'm in touch with his his widow, and she wants his story to be told as well. Uh, but you know, uh, his name was uh, Lieutenant Colin Rice, and when uh, when I lost him, uh, I knew that. Uh, that more had to be done because it's just like you said, when, when we, when we can bring it to the foreground and we can talk about it, we can perhaps increase some awareness. Um, the influencing part that you, you talked about or the mentorship part, to be honest with you, that's what I purport as being the fix. Um, and it's not, you know, it's not the everything, right? It's not the, it's not going to be the everything pill that makes this all go away. But there, there's a model 
that uh, a psychologist uh, created and and it's it's a pyramid and and what the, i mean it's it i'm paraphrasing it obviously uh but what the basis of this of this model is is that the base of it is your friends your family your colleagues your peers those are the people who will normalize uh, those feelings that we're having, right? Those those stresses that we have, not only as humans, but as firefighters. Uh, if you have that ability to talk to somebody about it, you know, to to um, vent with your buddy over a, a coffee or a beer or whatever it is, uh, 90% of the people will fix you know, they will heal themselves with that. So that this, this foundation is huge. So when, when you talk about mentoring and, and influencing, you have that ability to save lives every day by being there for your, your brother in arms, right? You guys have chewed the same dirt. And so, you're able to talk about it, right? It's it's not necessarily something that maybe a spouse is is going to uh, uh, open up about because of you know the, the the stuff that we see, but somebody who's been there with you by your side and can uh, can empathize with you and be there uh, in that darkness with you and help you find the light. That's that's where it, this is going to get better. In that model, the the very tip of it is like ten percent of the people need you know professional help. You need that because not everybody's going to get fixed down here. But up here, uh, it is is very rarely used. It's this it's this base model. So the some you know uh, models like the peer support team or uh you know company officers just being uh present with their crews and knowing what their crews are going through and seeing when somebody is disengaging from uh from the rest of the team and going off and not eating with the team and being uh isolated recognizing that and using something uh, and to use your your uh, curriculum, Michael, on mental health first aid, using something like that to recognize and and to refer them to to uh, to those resources that are available, we can make incredible progress uh, on this this issue, and that's what I'm trying to do uh, in, in in smaller rural departments uh, that don't have the resources. Is I, I want to raise that awareness. Look, you you guys have the resources to be able to do this uh, within your department with with very little money, uh, a lot of effort, and a lot of frustration uh, that you'll go through because not everybody's going to be accepting of it. Right? It, it's it's a hard thing. It, it's changing a culture. Um, uh, a dear friend of mine. Uh, Chief Greg Flynn. I don't know if you know of him, uh, and I'll I'll talk about his initiative here in just a minute. 
but he has he has a saying of changing the fire service culture one heart at a time. If we can change one person, right, and and then that person influences or mentors somebody else to that that same uh, feeling and that and that same commitment to helping each other. We can reduce the the potential of suicides in the fire service. Um, so that that initiative, uh, and, and I would encourage anybody who's listening and you guys as well uh, to consider adopting. Uh, it's called the Yellow Rose Campaign, and Chief Flynn lost a member of his department to suicide, and he was equally impassioned. Uh, if not more so than than me, and uh, through the Michigan Fire Chiefs Association, I'm going to step away from my camera for just a second, so I can get uh, this coin. Um, so uh, the the Yellow Rose campaign uh, is uh, through. Uh, it started with the Michigan Fire Chiefs Association, and it involves a pledge. Uh, uh, that you take as a member of the department doesn't matter the rank. Um, there's there's no stigma behind it, and uh, and what it does is is it says that you will be there for your brothers and sisters who, uh, with whom you serve. And super simple. Um, it is a, an incredibly simple concept that we adopted uh, at the New Mexico Fire Chiefs Association, and then uh, I was able to get our union. Uh, to uh, purchase the one side of the coin. And we did this as a labor management initiative in our department. And so uh, it's voluntary, but, you know, a good 90% of the department did it. They, they took the pledge, they get the, the challenge coin, and it's, a, it's kind of a public acknowledgement that, hey, we're recognizing that this is an issue and we're doing something about it. Um, so, uh, and it, it doesn't cost anything except for the cost of the coin, but um, it's just something to consider for, uh, for anybody that, that wants to do something simple, uh, but effective. You know, Paul, we talk about mental health and, and people, some people could tune out or get a little uh, fatigued with it. But if you're on LinkedIn as much as I am and other social media stuff, um, there's so much to be said for people don't care how much you know to the know to the know how much you care um, about people don't leave uh, what has it go people don't leave bad companies they leave bad bosses or something along those lines it really is about taking care of people and like I said before I wasn't always this way but um, you grow and and you make mistakes and you acknowledge mistakes and, and you try and leave it better than you found it. Um, we are in the people business. We are people that take care of people and we get, we can get blinded by the million dollar fire truck and the gear and, and, uh, and the regalia and, 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 uh, the couple hundred years of tradition and, and all that stuff. And I'm not saying that people do, but, but some people do. Um, and when we recognize, and, and this is, 
this is truly what I love about what I do now is that I get to see people. I've incorporated a, a couple of new programs for people coming into the fire Academy. And one of them is a journaling program oh, awesome. because I, I, I see them before they start. I see them on day one, which is a mandatory orientation before they're in the fire Academy, they're accepted, but they're not in. And, um, I tell them that you're going to go through a transformational change. Um, and I take a picture of them on day one. And then I give it to them at a certain point in there um, before they graduate. And it's so incredible. Like Mike shared a picture of a year three picture from EFO. And I sent it to like six people. <laughs> well, you um, used to be good looking. So. Yeah, I, I used to have hair and all the good stuff. Um, None of this. But, but the the um, it's a, it begins and ends with people, and uh-huh. um, there are so many people that come into this business. I'm convinced. I mean, I could be wrong, been wrong before, I'll be wrong again. I'm convinced that that people come into this because they, they want the camaraderie. They want the the community. It's very few people come into this because they want to run into burning buildings. They may think that they do. Um, but it, it's about the, the, the fraternity, the brotherhood, sisterhood, you know, being around people, the community that comes along with it. Uh, and that's what, what you lose when you leave it. And we're all on the other side of that. And, and, uh, not that life's not good on the other side, right? We, we've said that before, but <laughs> but you still do you still do miss that. Absolutely. Um, the I just want so badly wanted when I was in, and want so badly now to be able to create an environment for people where they actually want to come. And I I told people I was teaching my intro class the other night. I teach in the degree program too. So the intro class, and I said, same thing I said to the recruit recruit class, my role, my job is to create an environment for you to be successful. And I tell them a story that, and I may have said it on the podcast once before, I heard it and made a lot of sense to me. It said, you cannot grow a tomato. You can only create the environment for the tomato to grow. And... If you put people in the right environment and you take care of them and you do the right thing by them, not that they're not going to make mistakes because they are, because that's what life is. But if you use your wisdom and experience and knowledge and compassion and empathy and, and all of those tools that you gain on your pathway to wherever it is that you get to, and you don't need to rise through the ranks to get there. There's plenty of solid firefighters out there that are, uh, should be positioned in an organization to be be able to make a difference in the lives of other people. But you have to want to do it is the point, right? It, it's, it, it's an active, it's an active process. It doesn't happen by itself. Um, it takes work and it takes caring and it, and, and it takes being vulnerable. You know, my friend, Dan DeGrice, um, 
talked about that in his uh, keynote for FDIC, which is, it's about being vulnerable. And it really is. Um, you have to let other people know that you care. And sometimes that can put yourself in a, could feel, you can feel exposed by doing that. Because sometimes it's easier to hide behind all the shields that we have. As Brene Brown talks about the armor that we put up. Um, but I'm convinced I, that we're leaving it better than we found it. I'm sorry, Michael, go ahead. No, it's okay. I just like that the theme for this podcast, which came from Paul before he became a firefighter, was the human connection is the key. Is the basis of that pyramid you mentioned. It's why you chose to be in the fire service. It's what was interesting to you as a reporter, uh, visually or in written word or verbally. Um, just human connections across the board. And it solves so many ills when you know someone cares about you and relies on you caring about them because that's that closed loop part of it. Because you can care a lot about somebody who's lost, but if they're lost, it's because they don't realize that they need to care about you. It, it comes back around, kind of like that story you said about the guy that did not choose to kill himself because he gave his kid a happy meal. He had needed to be there for the kid. He had a reason to be. He had a reason to be here with us. And it solves addiction problems. It solves depression. It solves so many of humanity's ills, that human connection with each other. And in the fire service, military, police, law enforcement, anybody who's under EMS, anybody under stress for their job, in other words, the, the crisis management people, it's absolutely essential because we all have to rely on it. We all have to lean on each other. That was one of my favorite lessons from EFO year four was going out and doing the ride in Gettysburg and going to North Carolina's monument and showing how the, I don't know if you guys did year four with it. That's where you stopped, but that's where we stopped. The actual carving, the actual monument shows the, the soldiers literally leaning against each other, shoulder to shoulder, touching each other. And that physical human connection was also an emotional human connection. It's how they could continue to keep going because they had their brother with them right next to them. So, uh, and even in the fire service, you're supposed to be in contact with each other when you're inside of a burning building. You're, you're supposed to be together. Human connection. I like that. I like it that that's like the theme of the night uh, and how it relates, not just emotionally, but physically. And also just what gets us into this business. And it's also why Mike and uh, Rob and I are doing this podcast. We like to still be connected, especially with people who are special, which everyone is. Everyone is special. So this human connection is really a, a nice theme. I really enjoy in the, uh, the conversation. Yeah, well put, Michael. So, Paul, let, I know that I just saw you post on my LinkedIn and we talked about some of the work that you're doing. Talk to us about your newest endeavor. So uh, just through uh, my kind of passion for this subject, uh, I started volunteering for the New Mexico Suicide Prevention Coalition. And we're, we're you know, just a, a ragtag group of uh, people who care. Um, you know, a lot of the, the folks involved are mental health providers uh, or on the periphery uh, of uh, providing services uh, for various communities. And we talk a lot about um, solving that that problem. New Mexico 
uh, unfortunately is fourth in the nation uh, for suicides per capita. Um, and if you look at the data, you'll see that uh, a lot of Western states are, are in that list. Um, and, you know, we have a lack of resources here, uh, you know, access to means and, you know, all of the all of the the issues that uh, that go along with uh, suicidality. And, um, you know, the fire service is a, a reflection of society, right? I mean, uh, our communities are us. Uh, and the numbers of people who are dying by suicide, uh, you know, tend to be white males, um, you know, age 25 to 45. Um, it's a reflection of the fire service, right? And, and so uh, I was leading a group in the Suicide Prevention Coalition uh, for first responders so we could specifically kind of target our efforts uh, towards uh towards first responders and uh, came up with an idea to um, take this mental health awareness, uh, suicide prevention, resiliency course, uh, develop it and take it out to rural fire departments who don't have the resources. I mean, I'm, I'm pretty blessed here in the Albuquerque metro area to have a, a good number of resources. I mean, is it adequate? I don't know, is it ever adequate? Um, you know, we, I think we have a mental health crisis in our, in our nation, uh, and we don't have the resources to, to handle that, but you know, that's another discussion. Uh, and so, uh, I want to help, uh, the ones who need it the most, these smaller rural departments that don't have any resources. And so I was able to, uh, acquire some funding, uh, through United Healthcare. Um, they fell in love with this program. And uh, we launched it yesterday, actually. Um, we, we are going to hit about 18 sites across the, the, the state uh, and hopefully, um, you know, touch a lot of lives. And as, as my good buddy Greg Flynn says, you know, changing, uh, changing one heart at a time. And we had three departments represented yesterday and had the most incredible conversation with these gentlemen uh, who are dedicated to to this uh, to this effort, um, you know, you're it, it, and, and it and it's it's funny when you were talking about you know we're we're taught that teamwork in the fire service uh, uh, when we're talking about uh, you know uh, fire ground tactics and and what have you. Um, and so we operate as a team and we accomplish great things as a team. And this is just another, uh, another thing that we can uh, put our team efforts towards. And it's gonna take, uh, it's gonna take a lot of banging our heads against the wall, um, but we're finding a lot of followers. We're, we're finding a lot of people that are, uh, that are willing to step up. Um, the Yellow Rose campaign, when I, when I, brought it to the New Mexico Fire Chiefs Association back in 2019. Uh, I had some chiefs that I've known for a number of years that have been in the business for 30, 40 years that came up to me in tears and they said, it's about time we started talking about this. Um, and so, uh, so I've got uh, about eight departments uh, that have reached out to me that want to host this. Um, it's a 
it's no cost because of the generosity of United Healthcare. Um, and so uh, uh, we're we're out to 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 make a difference. I mean, if it's just starting in the state and uh, and getting getting these uh, these folks uh, the information to uh, help them uh, build a program, help them uh, recognize when somebody's having an issue, and uh, help them uh, realize that they can use uh, self care and resiliency um, to combat those career long stressors that they've been dealing with in the in the fire service um, to you know to get them to the finish line with their soul intact. That's awesome. That's awesome. One heart at a time. I love it. Yeah. Yeah. So what's the best way to people for people to get in touch with you or to find out more about the program, Paul? Uh so uh my email address is beers.paul, pretty simple, B-E-A-R-C-E dot P-A-U-L at Gmail. Um, I would suggest, uh, you know, if, if they're interested in this topic, uh, look on the Michigan Fire Chiefs Association website for the Yellow Rose campaign. Uh, you know, I think that Chief Flynn would like nothing better than to have this be a nationwide effort. Uh, he's got about uh, a, a dozen or so uh, departments that are are doing this. Uh, when I teach, I, I I tell them, look, get with your union. Um, you know, this is a great labor management initiative. It gets everybody on the same page. This is not coming. You know, it, I I the, this this problem is solved as a top down and a bottom up approach, right? Um, it's not going to be it's not going to be solved because the fire chief wants it to be. Um, it's going to be solved uh, because uh, people want it to be solved. And uh, you need the support of the fire chief, um, but you also need the buy-in from the, from the crews. And, uh, you know, if you can get the, you know, and IFF has, has stepped up in a big way, right? The Center for Excellence uh, in Maryland, and they're, they're building one out west uh, as well. Uh, you know they're they're committed uh, to doing this, and you just need the locals to uh, to buy into this. Uh, I, I want to mention something else that you know is a, a, a an effort that I think is gaining strength, um, and uh, it's it's kind of teaching resilience uh, in fire academies. Uh, and uh, I would mention that uh, Albuquerque Fire in their fire academies. Uh, they're teaching uh, mindfulness-based stress reduction, uh, which is, yep. you know, very innovative. Um, there's a captain, uh, his name is Miguel Titman. He's a great guy. And uh, he, you know, they, they do yoga. Um, they do uh, combat breathing, uh, body scanning, meditation. Uh, they teach this in their fire academy. And that's a, that's a huge cultural shift. Uh, we need more departments to uh, to do that because uh, again it's another tool in the toolbox it's a survival tool for Christ's sake you know I mean this is what you know we give them all those survival tools to you know to to break through uh, you know a wall if they're trapped or you know learn how to how to uh, breathe if they're if their SCBA is getting low on air you know we teach them all these survival tools uh, when we do the saving your own but we don't teach them how to how to survive mentally, uh, how to survive with their soul intact. So let's start focusing on that. Um, let's get those leaders out there to start uh, funding uh, these programs and 
look at the the EAP, uh, you know, make sure that uh, it's it's fire centric, you know, make sure that they have a knowledge of our unique our unique population and the unique stressors that, that we go through. So, so, you know, they're not gonna uh, give the firefighter the, the advice of, well, I think you can tough it out, right? Um, <laughs> you, need to, you need to have them where they're, you know, they're aware of, of what we do and, and what we face uh, on a daily basis. So uh, it, the fix is out there. Um, we just need to keep fighting. And uh, we're making progress. You know, I, I started this journey, uh, uh, you know, probably 10, 12 years ago uh, when, when we were finishing up EFO. And, uh, uh, you know, I'm, I'm fighting for it. And uh, it's, been, it's been a little bit of an uphill battle, but it's starting to get easier. And, uh, and it's getting recognized and, uh, you know, people are starting to embrace it. And, and I think we're making change. Awesome. Work. Paul, which, uh, who's doing the mindfulness meditation in the academy? Uh, so uh, it's Albuquerque Fire. And the captain's name is Miguel Titman, just like it sounds, T-I-T-T-M-A-N. I'm not sure if it's a double N. That's uh, right. I'm going I'm to get the information from you. Yeah. Interesting. Very smart guy. He's, Interesting he's, stuff. He's the uh, local 244 president uh, for uh, the Albuquerque Fire Union. And uh, he's done a number of presentations uh, for IFF conventions about this. And so it, it's making inroads, um, you know, and I, and I figure if you can get uh, labor uh, to bite off on this and get some uh, fire chiefs to support it, um, we're going to, we're going to make a, a, a huge dent in a, in a, in a big problem. Yeah. Well, listen, I mean, uh, as I said on previous podcasts, Florida, the Florida system is a little bit different. The vast majority of people that are in the fire Academy are pre-employment. They come to us to get certified and then go get hired after. So there's no labor management. Um, I could pretty much institute as much change as I want. And, uh, <laughs> One of the things I love about it. It's great being in charge, um, isn't it, Michael? <laughs> it doesn't suck, you know? <laughs> um, any final thoughts do you have for us, Paul? It was truly an enjoyable time that we had tonight, but uh, it seems like a pretty good place for us to wrap it up. Any any final closing thoughts you have for for the listener? I, I would say that, you know, just this, that, that I appreciate the opportunity, uh, you know, to uh, tell my story uh, and, uh, you know, to hopefully get uh, that one heart to change, you know, just from somebody who's listening uh, to recognize that uh, this is an issue. Um, and uh, and we need to we need to use the you know the creative thinking and uh, the change of uh, you know our culture uh, to 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 make a difference. And and if if one of your listeners can can uh, raise their hand and say uh, I'm with you and be be a you know be a disciple for this, uh, then uh, then uh, our job is done. Agree. Well put. So for the listeners out there, if you want to get in touch with me, 
I'm at uh, M Alora at mentorsonfirepodcast.com. You can reach Rob at R personally at mentorsonfirepodcast.com. And Michael Benson, your email address is Michael at Command Consulting LLC. Don't forget the LLC. Yeah. Dot com. And I have to say, it really is nice having an octogenarian on the on the podcast here since you started in the uh, fire service when you were 65 years old. <laughs> no, it is, it's really enjoyable to hear a perspective for somebody who had a career and then did a career. Uh, it's just really cool. Yeah, World War II and still. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you for your service, World War II. Thank you very much. The greatest generation. Yeah. I, I would mention that. Big one. That the listeners are not going to see Michael's beard, but he, I think he's got far more gray in his beard than I do. Oh, if they oh. see, they'll see it on YouTube. If they see it on YouTube, my uh, goodness, that uh, he's they have this thing is called uh, something yeah. for men, something yeah, for men or something. Yeah. yeah, this is the real deal. <laughs> Look at this gray. I'm not showing my head beard. though. Yeah. <laughs> so, no, we, really uh, been a pleasure, Paul. Thank you very much. I appreciate. You. Thoroughly enjoyed it, and. uh we will talk to the to, to the listeners out there. We will talk to you soon. Thanks for listening and good night, everybody. Thank you. See you.